and welcome everybody to another edition of the Coltec Austin Tech Leaders podcast. This week, I have the privilege of being joined by Robbie Anderson, the VP of Engineering at Active Prospect. Active Prospect is an Austin-based SaaS platform on a mission to make content-based marketing the best method for customer acquisition. Robbie has had a brilliant career to date and has uh, been a director of technology, CTO, director of engineering, a number of different uh, fast growth businesses. And yeah, in regard to that, it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you here today, Robbie. So that's a little introduction for me, but I'm sure you can do a much better job. So why don't you let us know a bit more about yourself? Thanks. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. My name is Robbie Anderson. Like like you said, right now I'm serving as the VP of Engineering at Active Prospect. I've been there about six months and was brought in there really to scale the engineering department. Active Prospect has been around for 15, 16 years, but it's really been in the last three to five years that they've found their place in the industry, found the right market, have the right products and are growing from, you know, like 50, 100%, 50 to 100% year over year growth for the last few years. And my job is to help them go from you know 20 million to 100 million in, in revenue and and scale the engineering team from 20 to 100 or you know whatever whatever that number is going to be before this i spent six years at cvent which does event management and planning software and i architected a couple of their systems managed you know gm the austin office and watched that company grow from you know 150 200 million to 500 million in revenue while i was there and that was that was amazing and I've lived a charmed life before that. I, I worked at Disney for a while and did a Star Wars game. I worked at Austin startup called Challenge Games that built a baseball game. That was that was my midlife crisis job. Um, <laughs> and before that, worked in the the startup space with a couple different Austin companies, Ray Genius, and and one before that called Not Harvard, which was sort of a local legend back in the late '90s, early 2000s. And you know, started this particular tech journey at a small company where I was the first non-owner employee, you know, like person number four in the company. And so that was that was a lot of fun. And it's been really fun moving through all of the different companies and, and seeing what Austin has to offer. I moved here some 20 something years ago specifically to come to Austin because at the time it was an emerging tech hub. It wasn't really a tech hub yet. It was it was start, they were calling it Silicon Hills and, and it was starting to really hit the national radar as hey this is a this is a place that tech companies are going to want to be at for for all the different reasons a austin's gorgeous and then b it's also texas which is very business friendly yeah i guess uh a fantastic career that you've had as you say you lived there you got the opportunity to work on the star wars game which uh which is uh, every uh well, most techies dreams to be able to work on something like that and work in a business like disney so you've had the experience of working within huge multinational businesses in right, Disney and then as well as that working in startups and seeing them scale or seeing those businesses scale from startup to you know 500 million dollar revenue businesses and you've been in the tech space in Austin for the last 20 years so you've seen a lot what is it about Austin that's took it from this 23 years ago being the you know Silicon Hills or the sort of tech scene that's starting to emerge to what it is today probably arguably one of the number one tech hubs globally you know there's a lot of factors when i when i moved here you know companies moved here 
20, 25 years ago for uh, for a number of reasons. Number one is it was cheap. Now, that's not the reason people move here now, but 20, 25 years ago, I moved here from, from California and I remember my cost of living dropped, I don't know, 50 to 100%. It was crazy. It was a, it was a staggering number for me. I grew up in, in California and didn't ever think, I, I moved here when I was 28 and friends of mine were buying houses and I couldn't even ponder what that meant because in California, you just, you yeah. know, there was no way I was going to be able to do that. Even on a tech salary, there was just no way that, you know, that buying a house was, was in order. And I remember when my wife suggested that we start looking at houses, like you're crazy. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that was certainly one of the factors was cost. I think Austin is one of those towns that just has the perfect confluence of factors. There's a huge university here, University of Texas. Yeah. This is also the state government center. There's, you know, one of the things Texas has a lot of is land. So there was land everywhere to grow. And you see that with Dell basically creating a whole town, you know, yeah. around around their business. And then there's talent. And a lot of that talent comes out of UT, but a lot of talent moves here. Um, my wife, who also works in tech, for example, she grew up in El Paso. She came to Austin to go to University of Texas, and then she stayed. And, you know, that this is where we met and we, this is where we got married and raised our kids and, every, and had a, most of our career. And that story is not uncommon. People come to Austin. It's gorgeous. The people are friendly. There's a lot of opportunity and people stay. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen is talent begets talent as talent accumulates and people identify that and recognize that. Then other companies move in that, you know, other talent moves in because of that. And you get this perpetuating cycle. And, and that's really what's happened here. Yeah, it's been so. It's a lot of conversations that I have with people, with, with other tech leaders, and other you know episodes of, of the podcast. I mentioned the university having a steady conveyor belt of talent coming out of there, and really you know a really strong base to learn from. Uh, another thing that a lot of people mention is obviously the well, you mentioned moving in from California to to Austin, the VCs moving, starting to sort of take up root more or looking at Austin more over the last sort of 10, 15 years, maybe. Whereas before you'd have to be in and around Silicon Valley. And now they've started to cast their net a bit further, which then sort of brought more money into the startup community in Austin, which has then obviously seen that, seen that grow. Is that something that you've experienced as well? Seeing that much that, you know, you've obviously seen it, but something you've noticed that the, the, the explosion of tech businesses since that VC money has been coming in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was back 20, 25 years ago, there was a company called Austin Ventures that was, you know, it yeah. seemed like everybody in Austin was funded by Austin Ventures. But we've seen more VCs, some Texas-based, some Midwest-based to pay more attention. And then the Silicon Valley VCs starting to notice, you know, some of those Texas companies starting to, you know, with little investments and then bigger investments. And then also the other thing, you know, I think we've seen are companies like Sony and Disney. There was a period here where there were a lot of game companies in Austin. And because there were a lot of game companies, there was a lot of talent that was available and people that moved in for those game companies. And I don't think we have quite as much as um, we did maybe 10 years ago, but there was a, a very large swell of those companies. And then you also see a lot of, because there's talent here, you know, besides the entrepreneur side and the investment side, we also see big companies moving operations here. Not yeah. the entire operations, but they have a lot of satellite offices out here. And you see that with you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, um, you know, they got pretty big presences here. 
Siva did that. Siva acquired a little company that was here, but then they built out, you know, I think uh, it's 120, 150 person office here. And half of that was development. It's amazing to see because it's all companies, like you mentioned, companies of all sizes. It creates another more spin off businesses as well. So the likes of Facebook or whatever, you know, Uber, uh, Tesla, uh, you know, whoever else moves into Austin, the senior engineers that then sort of create a startup business would then spin out of one of the, you know, one of the large businesses to create another startup, which then creates more jobs and then sees it. So it's just a, an ever turning circle, basically, where things, it just keeps growing, which is fantastic. You also can't discount the influence. Like I worked at Cvent, which is a Vista company and Vista, this is one of, you know, Vista equity partners. This is one of their headquarters. And yeah. one of the things they do is, you know, they move companies here right, either to Texas or to Austin specifically. And that certainly, while not everybody loves the Vista business model, they certainly have had effect on the Austin landscape in terms of the money that's available and the and the oh, companies that have been. I bet you've seen as well the drop in the cost of living from California to Austin when you first moved over. You can bet, I bet now that the area is growing. Obviously, I mean, it's just economics, but as the area is growing, the uh, you know prices are starting to creep up a little bit more now with the economy booming as it is. It's been interesting. So we're in the third house that my wife and I bought. And the first house we bought in, I want to say like 98 or 99, right before there were, there were, you know, there were two housing busts here and we bought one right before the housing bust. So we bought it and we were immediately upside down. And then in 2007, 2008, we bought another house and the same thing happened, right? You know, we were upside down on it. So when we bought this house two years ago, we sort of said a silent prayer to the universe and said, man, sorry, we're about to tank the housing prices. And instead in Austin, largely as a result of, of the pandemic and the kind of the after effects, the housing market here, this house has almost doubled in value. Yeah. It's been exactly the opposite. And so between a lot of people moving out of the city and into the suburbs, a lot of people just moving in general, remote work, um, I think we, we've seen more of an impact in the last year and a half from pandemic after effects than from the, than from the normal housing effects. Like yeah. for, or at least it certainly escalated what was what was already going on. It's yeah, the, the knock-on effect of, of the the market growing on the the tech scene growing on the, on everything else is um, you know it's just it's creating such a a booming economy I suppose for Austin in terms of sort of the the, the prices of houses going up. There's a lot more money in the area because of, of you know there's the software engineering salaries, big business VCs coming in. So it's just created. Is it the change the landscape completely where it would have been when you first got went in 20 years? So you've seen the start and the sort of evolution of that. With that and the, the growth that you've seen and the changes in the market, you've we mentioned earlier, we touched on some of the businesses that you've worked with. You know, you just mentioned the uh, the baseball game, which is, as you said, your midlife crisis uh, role. But, you know, then obviously the, the, the stuff that you've done with Zenga, uh, Disney Mobile, Seaven uh, and obviously now Active Prospects, you've seen different types of environments and different types of businesses. So how would you suggest, having seen all of the, you know, different types of companies and different types of environments, what's the best way for a tech business to prepare themselves for success? Now, this could be obviously within a sub team, within a large organization that, you know, we're looking to build this new product and it's a, sort of a new area. Or it could be, you know, a startup, right, you know, roll your sleeves up, let's go. How we can we best 
prepare? How can a business best prepare themselves for success? That's a good question. I will confess, I'm not great on the business side. I'm not an idea guy, so I really struggle anytime somebody says, you know, what's the best way of business for a business to do X? So I will default to what I'm actually better at, which is the people side. And my contention is always that you want to hire the right people and usually the best people. But my definition of the best people is not necessarily, you know, the hundred X or engineer that pumps out an immense business and your team the best, the, the people that are going to propel you along the way the best and make it the best working conditions for everybody else. I'm a pretty firm believer that we are people first and we are workers second, or for some people, we are workers second or third or fourth. Yeah. Like we all have a lot of different priorities. Some people live to work. I'm not one of them. You know, I work to live and and I like try, I try to provide that that sort of environment for the people that I work with and the people that work for me. So when you're thinking about what to do as a business, making sure you have the right people at the right time is really critical. You know, if you're a small business, hiring people who are spectacularly good at only one thing is probably a really terrible idea because they're they're not gonna be able to do the hundred things you need people to be able to do often without being asked that a small company needs. You know, similarly at a really big company, Hiring people that pride themselves on being a jack of all trades when you need them to do this thing yeah. this way using this process, man, that's that's going to be a position mismatch. You know, similarly, if you've got a a team that's that's all that you know is all super hardcore introverts, and you bring in somebody. I remember when I started at at the CVEN office here when it was really it was it was a startup they bought called CrowdTorch, and they they merged with this other thing, this other product. And I was the most gregarious person in the office. I remember walking in and I would say hello across the room to somebody. It felt like I was talking in a museum or a library, right? Because everybody was heads down. People that were next to each other would be communicating to each other over at the time it was hip chat, right? They would literally be sitting next to each other and communicating versus a messenger because that was kind of their culture. And if that's your culture and you bring somebody like me in there, that's gonna be really disruptive. And, that, and you need to make sure that that's an actual choice not an accidental happening, right? Because because the culture swirls that happen when you bring in people that are fundamentally mismatched with your culture can really destroy teams or even companies. I've seen that happen um, at a couple of places that were small enough that one grenade person in the midst of everybody else can really you know blow up what a company's trying to do. We've seen that so often. Obviously, working being the business the, the business that we are and working with startups, scale up businesses to build their tech teams. Couldn't agree more that having the right personality in there is having the right team and the right mix of personalities and the right mix of people. You may have someone who's an absolute genius who uh, as a developer, as an engineer, but they just for whatever reason don't gel with the rest of the people in the team. Personality, like you're saying, they might be uh, uh, a loud talker, they might just, you know, they might not want to talk and everyone else does or whatever it may be and that person that doesn't gel. It doesn't matter how good they are development, it's not going to be right for that business and then it's going to have a, a, an adverse effect. Whereas you might have 10 people that are not average, but, you know, good, solid developers and can do a number of different things and they just produce much, much better work because they're, they gel much more. So having that ability as a business to it's really key for business, any company. So with us, we're a startup. We've been running for two and a half years, but we're we're looking. To, we, we we've scaled, and now we're going international. Obviously, having what the the object or the target of the business is, having a goal or a value or whatever it might might be, a mission statement. This is what we're. This is what we are, and this is where we're going to get to. 
and then having that that everyone in the business is aligned to that same idea and it works to that goal in the right way and there's no one deviates <clears throat> from that uh, and, the, and everyone matches the values that you've set and the, the ways of working and then people that toe that line is so important because you can produce better work with five people than you could with 20 that aren't all going in the, in the same direction so having a, a business that or, or a team or a structure whatever it may be that is all following the same path is super important and then getting the personalities that then match on that is really key so any company might want that advice that i'd give you know what do i know but any business that's looking to scale has to have that before they can go out and try and hire the, 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 the and you say it's not always about the best talent it's the best talent for you and one of the most important interviews you can do, a lot of people scoff at it, is a culture interview. And it's not necessarily, do you speak this way? Do you, you know, do you do, do you believe this thing? Because I actually believe in diversity of thought on teams, but yeah. it's, are your, are your values aligned with our values? And you know, there are some companies that, that want to hire a bunch of cowboys and just say, go run, go, go do, and if that's yeah. the team you want, that's the team you should be hiring for. And you should be asking questions to make sure that that's what they're going to do. If you want, you know, a basketball team and you want them all to be passing the ball all the time, then you need to ask questions to identify, are you a passer or are you a shooter? And that's probably a terrible analogy, but yeah. you know, a lot of people don't like to do culture interviews, but for me, they're one of the most valuable. At Zynga, the, the chief people officer used to say that, you know, one of the things I stole from her is her hiring metric was smart, motivated, and then not a jerk, right? In that order, because you can't teach smart and you can't teach motivated. So a lot of my interviewing is around identifying, are you smart and motivated? Because I, I can't teach you those. And then after that, like, are you a jerk and will you fit on the team? It's so important. There's nothing oh, it opens your eyes to people more than like, uh, uh, like I mentioned a culture interview, but people can sort of portray themselves in a certain manner during an interview in a, in a conversation. Something's really, really powerful is that I walk around the block or like, oh, let's go out and grab a, oh, whilst with the interview's finished now, let's go and grab a coffee. Or like, I'm walking to my car, whatever it is. And in that time, people let their guard down. Or even just in the room. Oh, the interview's finished now, they're having that, you know, a general conversation. You can learn more in those five minutes having that conversation or that walk around the block than you have done in the last hour and a half. Because you need to get into a position where people's guards are down a little bit and they let their, their, real, their real self out. Rather than, I'm in an interview position, you know, I'm going to say yes, no, I'm going to answer exactly how I feel like they want me to. That, that's really important. So, yeah, culture interview is probably one of the best. Because like you say, obviously, they've got to have the fundamental code Like for an engineer. You've got to have the fundamentals of knowing how to code and knowing the tech quite. I mean, that's just, that goes without saying. But there's certain parts of it that you can teach. And they can, if they're part of a team, they can upskill from learning from their colleagues. But like you say, um, you can't motivate someone who's unmotivated no matter what. And if someone's not going to be on the same path as you guys, then it's, it's better to find that out as early as possible. So with the learning and growing of teams, you've seen lots of changes within technology as well. You know, new ways of working, new, uh, you know, AI machine learning is becoming more and more prevalent. If we're sitting here in five years, and obviously look, with what you're doing at the moment is all around the SaaS-based content marketing uh, platforms. That's going to have an ever-changing, ever-evolving way of, of being in the next, over the next few years. If we're sitting here in five years' time, where do you see the market being then? I know it's a very difficult question. If there was, if you used to say, actually, I think that this way of working is going to become more, you know, more front and center of what everyone's doing, because no matter what happens, there's always going to be. One company will start taking up a way of working, and then it will sort of 
as other businesses spin off from there, they'll work in the same way. Is there something that, or, or you know, a technology that they use, or you know, a method methodology? You know, I don't know. And this is one of those man. If I if I knew, I would go invest in all those companies. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, one of the things I've seen a lot uh, there. There's things we've certainly seen a rise of. Remote work is the first one, and there's follow-on effects from remote work that we're starting to see, especially. You know, once you open the gate to remote work, like what's the difference between somebody working in Indiana, New York, or Bangalore, or, you know, Eastern Europe? Other than time zones, there's not a lot of difference. And then when you start looking at budgets and costs, like, man, you know, I could, I could get somebody out in the Philippines and that costs a quarter or a half of what it costs somebody here. Is that a good choice? We've always sort of struggled with those nearshoring, offshoring questions, but as we think about it now in terms of, well, everybody's remote, what does that mean? I think one of the things we're going to start hearing more and more about is async work. And there's a number of companies that are already doing that. I suspect that's going to be the next kind of hot trend in how people work, which is, I think it was GitLab's posed the question, how would I advance this project, this commit, this check-in, this whatever it is, if everybody else were asleep at my company right now? That's a really interesting question. I've, I've thought about that a couple of times. Like there's so many of our workflows are, and our processes are designed and not just are my company, but I mean like, you know, everywhere I've been are designed around the fact that I've got somebody that I can either actively partner with in the same room or moving away from that, I can get on Zoom and I can partner with, or I can send them a Slack message. You know, Slack is both a great enabler and also the great distraction. I can get on Slack and I can message somebody and I can get an answer right away. What if I couldn't? And what if I had a team of 20 and everybody was in a different time zone, right? I could have a team of as many as 24 with everybody in a different time zone. What would that do to my work if, you know, some key contributor to my project was 12 hours off and there was just not a good way for us to work at the same time? You know, they're starting to see a lot of tools designed specifically around that. I think that's Loom's entire business model. And there's a company called Threads that does something similar like that. You know, how do we enable async work? So I think that's a place you're going to see a lot of. And, and, you know, on the technology side, you're already seeing everything moving into the cloud and, and you know, edge and serverless and, and all of the various different buzzwords. I think you're going to see more of that. But one of the things we're starting to see is tools on top of those because the ecosystem has become so, there's so many technologies, there's so many SaaS technologies. There's, you know, when I think of organizing our business, there are SaaS platforms to help you organize your SaaS platforms. I wish that was a joke and it's not, you know. Similarly, there's a lot of DevOps tools that help you arrange and organize all of your DevOps tools. You know, the, the JavaScript ecosystem, there was an article going around, it's probably five, six years old now about how complicated that the JavaScript ecosystem is that once upon a time, one person could understand an entire product or an entire front end. Now that's almost impossible, right? That one person can't understand all of the moving parts of an enterprise level system because it's so complex. So I think one of the things we're gonna see are more tools around how to organize the proliferation of tools so that it's easier to manage them both from a management side where I sit, but also from an individual contributor side. Like it's really hard to work effectively unless you're incredibly intentional around that. And most companies go through such rapid growth when they hit their hyper growth phase that that spins out of control. And you end up with a couple of gatekeepers who know everything, but most developers 
don't. Most of them struggle with their tooling and their workspaces and, and how to push things through the various different environments. It's fascinating to think that COVID has pushed probably, well, I, I would say, remote working and the ability of companies to look and say, well, actually, look, we could get someone over there to do it and they're working remote anyway. So what's the, why do they need to be in Austin? Or why do they need to be in anywhere in the US? So much more offshore teams, you're seeing that. But then again, with that, you haven't got this person's working here, whether it's on Zoom or not. I know they're in the same time zone or an hour's different or maximum free because they're in the, somewhere in the US. I live with it every day. So I do the, we do Austin hours from, from London, right? So so this is going off on a tangent like I said we probably would. But it happens to me so often, I'd be sitting here and because I've got the Austin time on, my, on the wall and on the thing just to try and make me acclimatise, I'll ring someone, I'll call like a friend or a partner or, or whatever, like, or someone from the office who works the London hours, and it'll be like 11.30 p.m. UK time. And I'll think, oh, it's like five o'clock because we're on this thing. Right. But it's, <laughs> you're not going to get hold of them. Or if you do, they're going to be annoyed that you've rung them at that time. So managing workloads or managing conversations between people, advantages of having like sort of round-the-clock delivery teams. So as people working in different time zones, it is round-the-clock. So you can have delivery going on all the time, which should enhance the speed of delivery of whatever you're trying to produce. Disadvantages is I'm not going to be able to speak to you about what we need to do. There's only a finite amount of time that we're going to be able to speak during the day. It might be four hours where we can actually communicate. We might not be able to get what I've done because I've got other stuff to do. So in, instead of actually enhancing the time of it being um, delivered because everyone's around the world, it can actually have the opposite effect. As time progresses, you may say, I don't, I don't know how you would fix that because you can't change time. Look at the processes that rely yeah. on that, that being synchronous and that rely on synchronous you know, live communication and figure out ways to streamline it. It's a much different world. When when I was at Disney, we were we had a team in Prague that was largely the back end team. And then we had a team in Australia that was doing a port firm into Windows. And then we had the team here in Austin that was essentially the client build team. And that was fascinating, right? Because three distinctly different teams, three massively different time zones. And I remember that I would wake up you know, get up at like six in the morning, hop on the computer, spend a couple hours from home. This is, you know, 10 years ago, working with the prog team on whatever they had come up and then would, you know, get the kid to school, take a shower, all of that stuff, drive into the office, spend, you know, most of the day working with the local team. And then around four or five o'clock, the Australians would come online, right? Because that was the beginning of their day. Yeah. And I would spend a couple hours with them resolving anything that needed to be resolved. And that was normal, right? That's just how you did that. Now that's totally not, right? That we would think about that differently. We would try to arrange processes so that that wasn't necessary to always, you know, to expect every morning to get on the phone with this team and get on the phone with yeah. this team or get on video with this team or get on video with that team. So it's really interesting. And I think you're right. You were saying, you know, COVID is accelerated the progress towards work from home dramatically and tremendously. You know, I think probably a decade or more we yeah. moved. 100%. As I say, from my position in a staffing business, the amount of companies that are now willing to look offshore or look at remote working, it's not even quantifiable in terms of the amount. Like it's at least pretty much every company you work with now that are hiring or looking for, will hire anywhere. Uh, and just They just want the right people for that. And then again, that just goes along with making sure that you've got the right culture and getting, well, and getting that in. And that part's hard. Making sure you have a yeah. remote friendly culture can be really difficult. 
a lot of companies will establish themselves as they've got their base of operations and then they start doing remote work either through acquisitions where they acquire offices and they build offices yeah. which is kind of that was the c-event model but also the zynga model they would acquire companies and they would basically start an office where they had a company and a lot of those companies tend to have a real hq first mentality right they say they're remote friendly but really the bulk of decisions are made by people in hq for people in hq they just don't yeah. see them if you're just looking at a particular group of people, you're not really thinking about the outside people. And now we see that too with individual remotes, which is even less obvious than having an office with remotes on it because it's just one person here, one person there. Yeah. So, you know, if the company, like we just had this happen, the company has an offsite, what happens with the people that can't or won't go for whatever reason, whether it's can't because right now there's still COVID concerns or they have family issues or they've got things going on in their life. They just can't get free. Or they're hundreds of miles away. Yeah. <laughs> How do you include them into yeah. an offsite? And if you don't, what happens with those people? You know, do they feel left out? Some of them might be breathing a sigh of relief, like Whew, I didn't have to go. But some of them's like, man, I would really like to go, but I can't. And now there's an artificial divide between the people that went and had fun and the people that didn't, or the people that went and got swag and the people that didn't. You know, in some companies, it becomes more problematic because you see, you know, promotions are limited or favored to the group that's, you know, in the HQ locus, which then, you know, compensation, stock, awards, all of that, you know, ends up mattering. And it's a real, like companies have to think more than just, oh, I'm gonna hire people from you know these other places. It's like, yeah, okay, now that you've hired them, how are you gonna best serve them to keep them? Because if you don't, they'll leave because yeah. they're now used to remote work. And you know, Silicon Valley went through this phase, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. You see all the management books that come out of Silicon Valley because they realized they had to have really good people managers because nobody was willing, pardon my French, to pay the asshole tax anymore. Right. Like if my manager's a jerk, I'm going to go somewhere where they're going to pay me just as much. And my manager's not going to be a jerk. And now we're going to start seeing this with remote folks where remote folks once upon a time were willing to put up with conditions that weren't as great because there were only companies, a few companies willing they to, got to work from home. And that, that was a, that was a bit a huge benefit, a huge benefit. Now that's yeah. it's quite table stakes, but it's becoming table stakes. Now it's not just, hey, we're we provide remote work, but now we're remote friendly or we're remote first, or we really think about this sort of thing. I know my executive team talks about this a lot because it's really important to us. And I see companies that are just dipping into the remote well, but they're not really thinking remote first and it's gonna cause issues. It's an idea. Okay, yeah, we are, we can work from anywhere because we have been doing it during COVID, office opener. Yeah, we'll hire anywhere. It's all fully remote, but they're not culturally processes you know the methodology the way they work and not set up for that which then causes people to join oh yeah great because it's remote hang on a minute i'll probably work for remote over here and they're much better set up for it and that's leads on to like a big thing that's in the press at the moment that you're hearing a lot of what well, we're certainly hearing a lot about is the great resignation like there's so many people now looking to move on job and that just adds to it it's because like you say the arsehole tax i can move i can leave this company I don't need to be here. I can be elsewhere. And you're seeing businesses or people joining companies, which is really strange. There's two, what we've found, two different types of people in the market. There's your type of person that would jump because they're offering extra salary. Okay, yeah, that's a bigger salary. I'm going to get more paid more. I'll go there. And you've got the people that are looking and saying, well, actually, look, I want to work for a more purposeful, value-driven business. And they want to 
you know, be part of a journey and part of a business that's actually doing something good. And as you say, and if the company that you're working for is not doing that, not treating the staff correctly, not doing the basics, and don't have that value that we spoke about earlier in the conversation, then you're going to see the best engineers leaving and actually probably in some cases taking less money to be part of something that's, you know, for the greater good. Yeah, and it's not just the best engineers, it's everybody in the company. Because yeah. most engineers, whether they realize it or not, are supported by a whole group of other people oh, of course, in yeah. the company, whether it's in HR or accounting or whatever. And when those people leave, it makes everybody's life really difficult. And so if you don't have a really good culture to hold on to them, they'll leave and they'll make everybody else's life difficult and then everybody else will leave as well. So that's totally what's going on. And and again, I think people have to be really intentional and this circles all the way back around to like the first question of the right people for the right job. You know, one of the things a former manager said to me was, you know, if all you're competing on a salary, then there will always be some, unless you're yeah. Facebook or, or Amazon, there's always going to be somebody who pays more than you. You'll lose if your primary value is salary. That doesn't mean that we're not, you know, everybody should negotiate for salary. It's an important thing, right? It's the most tangible way that a company rewards you is through salary and through raises and bonuses and things like that. But if, you know, as an employer, if I know a prospective person, that's their number one hot button, that means that if somebody else is able to, you know, yeah. pay them 10 or 20 grand more, they're going to leave, they're going to hop at that. And similarly, you know, if I'm an employee, I have to really think about, is this the number one thing for me? Or is it good working conditions? The reality is, is you spend, it's a little different now in, in working from home, but, you know, but once upon a time, it was, you're going to spend as much time with these people as you're going to spend with your family. Sometimes more. Yeah, probably should be people that, you know, you don't hate every second of the day you are working with. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's really a big red flag for me as a staffing consultant, business owner here. So even when we're hiring people to join in, I'm not saying oh, we're, we're tight and we're not going to pay people, but if that's their number one priority is what they want to get on, they want to get a you know 50% miles on that, then that's a bit of a red flag. It's like, oh, actually, look, obviously, we're going to pay you what you deserve, but there's got to be much more behind what the reason why you're looking to leave is because you're interested in this business or the way that we're moving. So, And similarly, when we're talking to engineers, product owners, product managers, BAs, we're DevOps engineers that we're in the process of recruiting for one of our clients. If the first thing they say is, oh, we're, you know, I'm looking for this and I won't speak to a business unless they're going to offer, you know, this or, you know, their number one motivation is an increase unless they're being paid like really, really badly in their last place, you know, and then, unless that's to get them up to sort of market level. If that's the only motivation, then it is a bit of a, well, I'm not sure, because like you say, I'll place this guy here that will get them integrated within the team. And then six months later, Facebook comes, uh, Amazon, whoever it may be, and says, we're going to offer you double salary and they'll just leave. Which again, if someone offered double salary, then you can't blame them. But you know, they have to be brought into the business that they're working for. And leads me on really nicely to the sort of question that we always sort of try and wrap it up with. Obviously, this is uh, this podcast is going out to all of our network in terms of the meet our groups from techies that we work with. One piece of advice that you've received that you've taken with you, and this is a really difficult question, you probably reserve, but it's one that you could pinpoint and say, no, that's really good advice and I've, that's uh, really helped me in my career. Can I give two? Is two okay? You can give 10 if you wanted to. I, got, I, got two. <laughs> I have a tendency to over-explain and I had a, a manager 
we were talking about something and we were getting ready for a big meeting, you know, lots of execs, lots of really smart people in the room. And he said, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room, which is good advice all by itself. He said, assume that the people you were talking to are smart and give them the basics and then let them ask questions. You don't have to explain everything up front. And I try to come back to that piece of advice often. It keeps me from babbling. It keeps me from talking down to people accidentally. Like, I don't mean to, but, you know, I'll just keep going on and on about something. It also helps, you know, a tactic is silence. And, and actually, as an interviewer, I loved silence as a tactic because you get to see, you know, who can handle the silence or who just starts going into babble mode. So that was one of them is don't over explain, right? Let people ask questions, give people the opportunity to ask questions. And then the other one came this long, long time ago. I was working at a company and I was finishing a project, but I was, you know, I was interviewing and I was getting ready. And this new company really wanted me to start right away. And they're like, can you start right away? And I said, no, I'm, I need to finish this project. I'm committed. Other people are relying on me. I'm the only person that can finish it. So I actually really need to give them like, you know, four weeks of notice instead of the traditional two weeks of notice. And the CEO of that company said to me, you know, Robbie, it's way more important how you leave a company than how you start. Take the four weeks. We'll be glad to have you when you start. And so I tell people that all the time, like, you know, do not, do not, do not burn bridges on the way out. You will, especially in a town like Austin, you'll yeah. end up having to cross that bridge again. It's way better to go out correctly, do everything right. You know, even if you're frustrated, it's much better to go out the right way and, you know, sometimes people want to start the new job because of a bonus or a, or whatever. I could get it. But one of the pieces of advice I give often to lots of people, I've repeated that story probably hundreds of times over the years is, you know, how you leave is more important than how you start. I think that's wonderful advice because it is so true. And like we touched on at the beginning of the conversation, the Austin tech market is growing and you're always going to bump into someone that you've worked with previously. So ensure it. And it's just good advice in general life. Just always leave people in a better position than you found them. Just make yeah. sure that, you know, if you meet someone in line with what you just mentioned, one thing that I always like explain to, will say to people, or one thing I try to live by is if someone speaks about me, I like them to say, if someone's, someone, they didn't know I was listening and they was talking about me, I like them to say, a nice guy. He's a really nice guy. Or, you know, yeah, worked with us, had no issues with him. Nice no, yeah. bloke. As long as someone can say that, then I'm happy. You know, they don't have to sing my praises, but as long as they don't badmouth you, then it's brilliant. So, look, I really, really, really appreciate your time today. A wonderful conversation, really insightful around the, the remote working culture, how to bring the right people into your business. If anyone that listens in would want to get in touch with you, what, how's the best for them to reach you? Probably the best way is to find me on LinkedIn, Robbie That's Anderson. I'm pretty obvious. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much for your time. The stuff you're doing at the moment at Prospect is brilliant. And the stuff you've done on Star Wars game, I really enjoy as well, because it's a, it's a great game. <laughs> so look, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, speak to you soon. Great, thank you very much.